The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about weapons, both the ones that evolve in nature and the ones created by us humans. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Before we get started this week, this is your friendly reminder that we've got a listener feedback survey up right now, ready and waiting for you to share your feedback about the show. It's only 10 questions, and nine of them are multiple choice, which means it will take you five minutes tops to fill out, unless you really go to town in the one question that isn't multiple choice, which we totally support, by the way. You can find the listener survey at scienceforthepeople.ca slash feedback, or by visiting our website and clicking the black listener survey banner on the top right corner. Your feedback is really important to us, and we want to hear from as many of you as possible. Many thanks to those of you who have already filled it out. We send you virtual cookies of appreciation and thanks. We want to keep making Science for the People something all of you out there in listener land enjoy. And we want to know what you want more of, what you want us to change, and how you want to support the show. We want to keep making the show available as a downloadable, subscribable podcast to any and all science lovers who might want to listen to it. The internet tubes we send our show through are not free, so there is always going to be a minimum cost associated with keeping the show up and running. Over the last five years, we've largely funded the show out of our own pockets in order to keep it free for you, the listeners. But lately, these costs are starting to increase and our pockets simply aren't going to be able to keep up. So among the questions you'll find in our listener survey is one about how you'd like science for the people to support itself going forward. We could look for sponsors and you could support the show with your ears by listening to advertisements and occasionally throwing a bone to one of our sponsors so they'll love our show as much as you do. We could also add affiliate links to our website and social media streams, and you could support the show with your clicks by purchasing some of the books you've heard us discussing. We could accept donations and crowdfund the show. Those of you who are able and willing could send us a few dollars over the internet to help offset our costs and keep the show free for those who can't afford to chip in, much as they might want to. So if you have a strong feeling about which strategies we use to keep science for the people free to listen to, now is the time to tell us. Our ears are open. You'll find our survey at scienceforthepeople.ca slash feedback. If you're listening to us on a smartphone or computer of any kind with an internet connection, you could be filling it out right now. Go ahead. Pause the podcast for a minute. We're totally cool with that. We'll be here with Doug Emlin when you get back. Scienceforthepeople.ca slash feedback. Ready? Go. Finished? Great. Thanks for sending us your thoughts and feedback. It is much appreciated. Now, on with the show. With me is Douglas Emlin, a professor at the University of Montana and an award-winning biologist who studies tropical insects. His research has earned him the Presidential Early Career Award in Science and Engineering, multiple research awards from the National Science Foundation, a Young Investigator Prize, and the E.O. Wilson Naturalist Award from the American Society of Naturalists. He's here today with me to talk about his new book, Animal Weapons, The Evolution of Battle. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. 
So one of my favorite things about science is right around the time it occurs to me to wonder why something exists or how it works. For example, why some animals have massive racks of antlers. A book like yours comes along and shows me that someone else has already given this a lot more thought than I ever would. So how did you become interested in extreme weapons in nature as a research focus? I've been interested in animals with crazy structures for as long as I can remember. And, and I guess I have to put that into context. When you look at the world around you or you look at a museum and pull out drawers and look at all the insects or you walk through the cases of stuffed animals in the Natural History Museum, there's all kinds of colors and shapes and diversity. And most biologists are in love with diversity in one way or another. But for me, it has always been the extremes. Things that stick off of the animals that look like they shouldn't be possible. So in my case, I study beetles with horns. These are protrusions that jut out of the bodies of these animals that are so big. I mean, the animals look like a mistake. They should tip over or get stuck whenever they try to move. And so I guess I've been interested in how these crazy animal shapes are possible for years, although it turned into something more academic and more serious when I was a graduate student. And I, and I started to focus in in particular on weapons, which is a subset of these crazy structures that clearly function in battle of one sort or another. And, and I really wanted to understand why in some species, the weapons that they carry get so absurdly big that, again, they look like they shouldn't be possible. Now, if this was just a book about extreme weapons in nature and why they happen, that would be cool. Um, but you combine that with a look at how the evolution of weapons in biology is often paralleled uh, by the development of weapons in human civilization. So how does a biologist get interested in military history? Good question. And you're right, it would have been cool just focusing on animals. And actually, that's what I started out trying to do. I mean, I'm a biologist. I wasn't intending to look at parallels with the military or history at all. So let me back up a step and say that, that I'd spent a number of years, now it's been almost 20 years, sort of focusing on one particular type of animal weapons. And these are the horns that are produced by beetles. And they're spectacularly diverse. There's thousands of species of beetles with these crazy horns. I mean, there's multiple lifetimes of work you could do just on beetle horns. But I'd been sort of immersed in that world for a while. And I stepped back and I took a chance, like a breather, to start reading the literature on all kinds of other animal weapons. Big claws and fiddler crabs or antlers and caribou or elk and tusks and mastodons and mammoths and elephants. And, and I started pouring through the literature on all these other animal weapons. And that's when I realized, wow, I've got to write a book. There's a fun story here. And, and as I started digging deeper and deeper into the animal diversity, and in particular focusing on these crazy weapons, I was rather stunned to discover that it's not a thousand different stories. I mean, really, that's what I set out to do was write a book where each chapter focused on a different kind of animal with a different kind of weapon. And they all sort of had their own stories to tell. And I started realizing, wait a minute, there's only one story here. It doesn't matter whether I'm talking about a, a little antlered fly in the New Guinean rainforest or mammoths on the Arctic tundra. All of these weapons are evolving for exactly the same reason. They're all getting sucked into the same kind of an arms race triggered by the same initial conditions. These arms races are unfolding through the same sequence of stages. So I was rather shocked to realize that all these thousands of different animals were telling one story about arms races. And it was at that point when I was writing this book and immersed in the diversity of animal weapons and realizing, wow, there is one story to tell for arms races and they're always doing the same thing that my editors and some friends said, hey, why don't you look at military traditions too? We've got arms races. There's been tons of arms races in the history of military technology. Maybe it's the same story there too. 
So it caught me by surprise. It completely changed the book and ended up turning into a book that is as much about military history as it is about animals. But that wasn't part of the plan. That was sort of an accident that landed fortuitously in my lap along the way. Well, and it is a, a fascinating accident. Uh, so I, I'm glad it, it found you. Um, but let's start with nature. Uh, there okay. are a lot of examples of animals and insects that have ridiculously extreme horns or antlers or weapons of some kind. Why do these types of weapons evolve? The simple answer is intense competition among males for access to females. There's a few odd situations like certain types of predators where you can get really big weapons, but when you when you lay it on a table, almost all of the really spectacular animal weapons are carried by males in a species, not females, and they're used not to kill prey, not to defend against predators. They're used in rivalries and matchups and battles between males that are fighting for access to females. So in a sense, all of these weapons are evolving in animals in the same overarching context. And there was part of that story was sort of already known for, for at least 20 years in the field of animal behavior. It had been well known that territorial behavior and fights over possession of resources tend to crop up in certain types of situations. So we knew already that when resources are critical and limiting, and they're patchy. So they're not spread out all over the place, but they're clumped together in a way that makes them easy to defend. That that kind of an ecological setting could spark a lot of competition and, and fights over guarding that resource. So we sort of knew there were some situations that led to lots of fights over limiting resources. And we already knew that sexual selection, this idea that often males compete for access to a limiting number of females, that this could drive intense competition. And when you put those two things together you find that you've got a backdrop for an arms race. Lots of competition for limiting resources, often in the form of males competing directly or indirectly for access to females. And so that was the starting point, but it wasn't the whole story. And so for me, it got very exciting when I realized that that's what we sort of already know, but clearly something was missing because there were lots and lots of animal species out there that had limiting resources and intense male battles over access to females. So they sort of had those two preconditions in place, but they didn't have big weapons. And when you look across the diversity of animals, in fact, many, many, many species have intense battles among males, but they don't end up getting sort of pulled into an arms race and evolving bigger and bigger and bigger weapons. So something had to be missing. And that missing ingredient was both, you know, the really fun part for me, the sort of epiphany moment that lets the pieces fall into place. And it was also the epiphany that led to the parallels with military technologies, because that last ingredient is the nature of the fight itself. The fights have to unfold as a duel, as a one-on-one -on -one matchup, sort of a almost a ritualized contest of strength where the rival males are straining and prying and pushing against each other in a one-on-one -on -one duel. Now, when you look across animals, most fights don't play out that way. Or if they do, they're not these sort of ritualized, predictable contests of strength. So imagine eagles fighting in the air or birds battling it out or wasps or butterflies. There's lots of species that fight in the air in these sort of intense matchups, but they're acrobatic and agile and you're whirling through the air. These kinds of species aren't contests of strength. And a big, bulky weapon would actually slow you down. It would make you less agile. So, so in species that fight whirling around in the air or where agility or speed matter, you don't want to have big weapons. They make you perform less well, not better. And then there's tons of species that fight in these scrambles. I mean, these picture a big scrum with three, four, five, ten males all piling into the fray. 
Lots of dung beetles do this, for example, and the males just pile into the tumble, and they're all pulling and scrambling and, and, and trying to get access to the, to the balls of dung in that case where the females are. Those fights are unpredictable. Even if you have a bigger weapon than the opponent, so much of the outcome of those battles is a scramble. It's, it's, it's influenced by chance that, that half the time you won't benefit from that investment. It's only those species that tend to line up one-on-one in these sort of predictable, repeatable matchups between rivals. These are the species where strength and weapon size really tip the balance. And you can, my favorite example of this is the dung beetles, a group that I spent many years working on. You can have a dozen different species in the same habitat, flying into the same resources, competing for females at the same time, same patch of forest, fighting. I mean, everything else about their biology is the same. The only thing different between them is whether the fights play out as a scramble or a duel. And that difference is the deciding factor. So some of these dung beetles dig tunnels into the ground underneath the dung, and the fights take place inside the tunnels, in these sort of tubes, if you will. And if you picture fighting inside a tube, imagine yourself sort of in a tunnel, bracing yourself against the tunnel walls. A rival male has to enter into the tunnel in order to confront you. Ten males can't attack you at once. Your flanks are protected, in a sense, because you're in a tube. The only way a rival can enter is face-first, coming at you head-on, one-on-one. And so simply by fighting inside a tunnel, the biology of these animals has sort of set the stage so that the battles unfold as duels. And in those species, the fights are predictable. The bigger, the stronger males are the ones that win. And invariably, those are the males with the really big weapons. And so selection in those populations pushes weapons towards bigger and bigger and bigger sizes. You can have other dung beetle species that are otherwise identical. They look basically the same. They're eating the same food. They're fighting at the same time. Males are fighting just as intensely for access to females, but the fight happen above ground, out in the open, fighting over a little ball of dung that these beetles are rolling away from the pile. Many people have seen dung beetles sort of pushing their little balls along the ground. Well, if males fight over these things, because often there's a female clinging to the side of that ball, these are these crazy scrums where males can come from all sides at once and you can have five, six, eight, ten beetles all scrambling around. The fights aren't predictable there. There's no payoff for weapons. So one change in behavior Fighting inside a tunnel versus fighting out in the open in a scramble makes all the difference. And you can start to look across thousands of dung beetle species. And the species that fight one-on-one in duels, in this case inside tunnels, almost always have huge weapons. And the species that fight above ground in these crazy scrambles never have weapons. You're listening to Science for the People, and today we're talking about examples of extreme weapons in biology and how they evolve with Doug Emlin, professor of biological sciences at the University of Montana. Okay, so understanding what the conditions are that are likely to cause an arms race in nature, what about in human military history? Are the conditions of human arms races similar? So ecological situations in animals set the stage for arms races by causing the fights to play out one-on-one in these sort of repeatable, ritualized duels where the bigger males win. So if you turn around and you look at military technologies, weapons are evolving in both of these cases. And the question we have to ask is, what are the circumstances where bigger weapons win? And when you look at military technologies, what you find is just as in animals that took a change in their behavior that suddenly caused fights that had been a scramble to now play out as a duel, you find in military traditions a change in technology. So some new innovation or something about the design of the ships or the guns or the the vessels or vehicles, something changes about them in a way that causes 
these rival ships or rival planes to interact with each other in a way that's different from what it was before. And in particular, it causes these things to shift from what had essentially been a scramble to something that is now a close-up, one-on-one duel. One of my favorite examples is, think about the ancient Mediterranean. We're talking thousands of years ago, before the Age of Sail, the time period when the, the when the warships were these long, sort of canoe-like vessels that were rowed by by oarsmen along the sides. There's evidence now that for seven, eight hundred years, maybe as much as a thousand years, the design of these warships didn't change at all. The ships had about 50 rowers, so 25 along each side, that paddled these things from place to place. And all they really did was shuttle troops, soldiers, from place to place. These weren't good out in the open ocean. They weren't that stable. They couldn't carry that much in the way of food for the people. So they couldn't go very far. So they'd leapfrog their way along the coastlines. But they were really effective in transporting armies from one place to another. And they didn't really interact one-on-one at all. Somebody invents a battering ram which looks a lot like a beetle horn, I have to add, but it's basically a rigid bronze protrusion that juts forward from the front of these boats. And all of a sudden, you take a vessel that had been something that was a vehicle of transport and you turn it into a weapon, and it's a weapon that strikes one other ship at a time at very close range. I mean, if you can maneuver fast enough, you can smash into another ship, you can shatter their hull and sink it. And all of a sudden, you want to have the bigger ship. Basically, the armies with the faster ships and the bigger ships were the ones that were most likely to win. And now you've got an arms race because you want bigger and bigger ships. You want to have a bigger ship than the other guys. And so what happened is they started trying to add oarsmen onto these ships. And they got longer and longer until the hulls started to snap or buckle in rough seas. So then they started stacking rowers on top of each other. You went from one row of oars to two, the bireams. And then you got two rows of oars going to three, triremes. And then... They couldn't fit any more oars, but they started adding more people to each oar to add power and strength and therefore speed. So the hulls got wider and the ship started adding three people, four people, five people. They they started calling these things tens and elevens and thirteens. The ships just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And in a span of maybe a couple hundred years, the ships went from these little tiny pentaconters that had 50 people rowing to these monstrosities that were these huge double-hulled catamaran-style ships with an enormous deck on top that carried 3,000 soldiers and were rowed by 4,000 oarsmen. I mean, these things were so big, they were absurd. They were essentially nautically worthless, but they made awesome sort of symbols of power. But the point here is one change in technology altered the way these ships interacted, and boom, from that point forward, you had an arms race, and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger was the result. You can flash forward a thousand years or so, and now we're talking about the age of sail. By this point, you didn't really have warships anymore because sailing ships didn't make very good warships. They tried putting battering rams on the first ones, but if you imagine a sailing ship, I mean, they can't go backwards very well, and they'd smash into each other, and then they get all tangled up. The rigging would snarl up with the rigging of the other ship, and you couldn't back up, and they weren't very effective at ramming. So these weren't good warships, and they ended up being vessels of exploration. They could carry a lot of food, and they could be manned with a much smaller crew because they were powered by sails. So these ships could cross oceans, and you have this sort of age of exploration. They tried to turn these into warships. They started putting cannons on the decks, but cannons were really heavy, and they made the ships really tippy and unstable in seas, and so it didn't work. The critical precipitating change in technology was the closable gun port these little flaps along the sides of the ship. And all of a sudden, you could put your cannon down low. And that actually made the ships more stable. So, boom, overnight, your sailing ships become warships again. And they started packing cannon along the sides of these ships. 
But these cannon were horrible weapons. They were not accurate at all. I mean, even in a steady field, you couldn't aim very well with a cannon. These are smoothbore cannon. They just punch this cannonball out there. But if you put those suckers on a ship that's rocking back and forth in high seas, these things couldn't aim very accurately very far. So the only way to sink another ship was to be really, really close to it, to essentially sail right up to it and then expose your broadside. That's where the term broadside comes from, is you're firing all the cannon along one side of these broad ships. You had to fire close range. So all of a sudden, a change in technology, now your sailing vessels are interacting in close range, one-on-one duels. And just like it did a 1,000 years before, that change in technology sparked an arms race. And all of a sudden, you had to have the bigger ship. Bigger ships had thicker hulls that were resistant to the cannonballs. They could carry more cannon. They could carry bigger cannon, heavier cannonballs. So all of a sudden... Ships started adding more and more cannon. They got longer. They got taller. One row of cannons became two. Two rows of cannon became three. The seven-pounders gave way to eight-pounders to 12-pounders. I mean, the the cannon shot just got bigger and bigger and bigger. So, again, the same idea, a change in technology changes the interaction, sparks an arms race. And it all comes down to a duel. Okay, so uh, let's talk about benefits versus costs for a second. Because weapons of this size, whether we're looking at the animal kingdom, insects, or people, doesn't come cheap. Um, It's obvious that extreme military costs money when we look at the human side of things, but nature doesn't run on a cash economy. So when we talk about the biological costs of these weapons, what are we actually talking about? So there's sort of a common theme, a common story to what starts an arms race. But now you bring up another huge part of the story, which is that once an arms race begins, there's a common theme to what happens during an arms race, that they unfold in the same kind of a way, and they proceed through the same sequence of stages. And so what happens, one of the first things that happens is exactly what you point out. These things get big. Selection pushes these weapons to bigger and bigger and bigger sizes. And as they get big, they get really expensive. There's some really elegant studies that have been done on ungulates, Deer, moose, caribou, elk, think of these types of animals and, and the bony antlers that these bulls are producing each season. It turns out that, you know, these antlers are bone. They're made of calcium and phosphorus. That's expensive. The bulls cannot get enough of those minerals from the, from the forage that they're feeding on. What they end up doing is borrowing it from the rest of their skeleton. It's this brutal form of deficit spending in a sense, but these animals shunt calcium and phosphorus they leach it out of the other bones in their bodies and allocate it pour it into the into the weapons they pour it into the growth of the antlers antlers are the fastest growing bones known for any vertebrate anywhere they grow incredibly fast and they suck all of these crucial minerals into them and then at the end of the season of course the males shed the antlers they throw it away so so these animals are pulling these resources out of their skeleton, and then they have to recoup those losses by the end of the season, or they can die. And then not only have they grown these structures, which can be 5-10% of the body weight of the male, but they have to use them. They fight nonstop, or they, they're all displaying and roaring and, and sort of challenging other males constantly throughout the rut. And all that time period, they're pouring all of their resources into into muscle mass and stamina and aggression. They're not spending time feeding. They're not taking resources in. They're burning and spending and burning and spending. And, and the bulls, by the end of the season, may have lost a quarter of their body weight. And so some of the, the caloric estimates of the cost of antlers suggest that it costs a male as much to produce a pair of antlers in one season as it costs a female to raise two calves all the way to weaning. 
But we can turn to beetles. Beetles have costs too. So they produce these horns during metamorphosis as they're building their, their wings and their genitalia and their eyes and all these body parts. These animals start out as a grub and then they go through this prepupil and pupil period where they rebuild their body plan and turn into the adult beetle. Well, as they're doing that, these things are a closed system. They're not eating. So caterpillars, if you picture something like a butterfly, caterpillars are munching away on leaves as they grow. But then once they become a chrysalis, a pupa, they're stuck. They're sitting there in this little sack. They're not eating. They're not taking in new resources. And yet they're spending tons of calories as they rebuild their muscles and they rebuild their nervous system and their digestive tract and they build all of the body parts that make up the adult animal. Well, when beetles do this, they go through this metamorphosis and they start building their body plan they're starting to allocate resources into a weapon. They're building horns that stick off of the body. And these horns can be 30% of the body weight of the animal. And that's something that's hard for a lot of us to picture. So the best way I can put that in perspective is I weigh maybe 175 pounds. God, that's me carrying two fifty or a 50-pound bag of dog food on my head with two cinder blocks. I mean, these are substantial amounts of weight that these animals are pouring into these resources. Where are they going to get it? So in the beetles, they have to leach those resources from other body parts. They shunt them away from eyes and from wings and from testes and genitalia. So there's evidence that these other body parts in males are stunted by as much as 30%. So in some of the beetles we study where the horns are on the head, the eyes were 30% smaller in the males that had poured all the resources into the horns than they were in other males that didn't produce the horns or in females. Imagine having stunted testes or stunted genitalia. I mean, these are pretty steep prices for these males to be paying. Fiddler crab claws are the champions. They hold the record for any animal. Male fiddler crab claws can be 100% of the body weight of the male. That means he is literally doubling his weight and allocating it into a claw. And then he lifts that claw up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down, waving this thing that weighs literally as much as he does. That's me lifting 175 pounds up and down, up and down, up and down all day long. So they're burning calories like you would not believe producing these weapons. And anybody who eats crabs knows those muscles taste great. Claw muscles are awesome. And so birds and predators often prefer the males. They're sitting out there like idiots waving their claws up and down so they're easy to see. And they've got these big muscles packed inside there that are really nutritious. And so the, the predation rates on these things can be extremely high too. So, so producing weapons isn't cheap no matter how you look at it. And that also takes weapon evolution in some interesting directions because you get to a point where these things are so expensive that actually most of the males in these populations can't do it. And in fact, only the best of the best of the males, the biggest males, the best fed males, the healthiest males, only a very small fraction of the males in the population have enough resources at their disposal that they can afford to produce these really big weapons. Most of the rest of the males can't. They're stuck with smaller antlers or smaller horns or intermediate size or in some cases, teeny, teeny, tiny ones or they don't produce the weapons at all. They simply can't afford it. Okay, so there's a lot of cost to these things, and I can definitely see that there are huge parallels there in uh, human military. But I guess I, I'm sure there's a lot of our listeners who are thinking now, well, what are the benefits to expending on a claw that you're going to, you know, your own body weight again that you're lifting up and down? What, what's the benefit? What's the win? I talk about parallels between animal weapons and military technologies, and in fact, I think there are stunning parallels. But it's important right here to mention that there these processes are a little bit different. So if you think of something like antlers and caribou, when 
big antlers win in a caribou population, what that means is those are the bulls who succeed in siring offspring. It's their genotype that gets passed on to the next generation. That is the currency of success. They have more offspring that carry their genotype than rival males with smaller weapons. If you want to talk about something else like a machine gun technology, we're talking about a different thing. For one thing, it's not part of the body of the people that make them. It's, it's a manufactured thing that stands alone separate. It's a technology that is, that is separate from the body of the people. And what that means is the currency of success isn't reproduction here. So when you make something like a machine gun or an assault rifle, you know, instructions for building that aren't encoded in the DNA the way that they are in caribou or beetles. They're, they're in computer programs or manuals. So they're, they're encoded separately. And they're manufactured in factories, not in the womb. They're not grown as reproductive. So the only way you make more copies of antlers is to make more elk. But that's not the way that you make more machine guns. So when you talk about evolution of a weapons technology, like, a, like say, like an assault rifle, the way to think about the process is to totally forget about reproduction. It's hard to do sometimes because machine guns affect human fitness. They kill people. So, you know, a dead person isn't going to reproduce. They do affect reproductive success of people, but that's not the way to think about the evolution of machine guns. If you think about a technology like a machine gun, then the way to think about it is there is a type of gun, say an M16, that is manufactured consistently and repeatedly. So when you go to a factory that's making M16s, they're making M16s. They're not making AK-47s or something else. They're making M16s. There may be variation in the design. Scientists may constantly be tweaking and trying to adjust it to make it a little bit lighter, a little bit easier to handle, to make those magazines not jam as you switch them under duress, or to make it not be as prone to sticking up when you get sand in the mechanism. And so so designers are constantly tweaking and adjusting the, the design of an M16 to try to make it better and more effective. And ultimately, they're tested on the battlefield as people are using them. If, the, if this new design works better than the last design, then that's what everybody wants. That's what the military orders. They start cranking out more of the new ones. If that new design sucks, it's actually worse than the earlier version. Nobody wants it. They don't use it anymore. They go back to the earlier design. So the selection process is a culling mechanism of people continuing to produce and to use the models that work and disregarding or getting rid of the models that don't work. And you can have competition among different models on that playground and and you can the playground is definitely the wrong word on that landscape (laughs) but you can think about you know if you're going to go into war do you want to carry the m16 or do you want to carry the ak-47 if one assault rifle actually works better than the other then it can sweep the field and that is a really good example because the ak-47 has swept the field it is without question produced in greater numbers than any other type of assault rifle it balances accuracy at a a really effective range with lightweight and ease of use it's practically indestructible that is a particular design that popped up on the landscape, you know, after World War II and swept the field. And nowadays, probably four-fifths of all the assault rifles on the planet are AK-47s. And so you can think about the evolution of a rifle technology by thinking about the fact that there are lots of variations that are produced. They're all tried out there in the battlefield in combat. Some work better than others. The ones that work better spread. That's the evolutionary process. So now we can turn around and look at manufactured weapons. And as long as we don't try to pretend it's about reproduction, we're not thinking about making more babies. We're thinking about when is a weapon so good that it succeeds and supplants earlier versions or other versions of it. And, 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 and we're following the progression of technological change in a weapon. We can say, when do weapons get big? 
What are the circumstances where all of a sudden you want the bigger, the more elaborate, the more sophisticated, the more expensive version, because that's the version that wins? And what you find is that's not always the case. With assault rifles, you don't want something that weighs a ton. People have to carry the sucker around. There's a trade-off between portability and killing power, and you want something that's efficient and effective, but also lightweight and portable and easy to use. So you get sort of a balance there, much more like a typical predator weapon that usually isn't very big. But sometimes, like when you get ships confronting other ships in close-range one-on-one duels, sometimes you get circumstances where the evolution of the weapons technology gets pulled into an arms race. And that's when you can start getting really rapid changes in design that produce bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger warships or more and more and more expensive aircraft carriers or whatever the particular technology may be. And the currency of success, the benefits are slightly different with manufactured weapons and animal weapons. But once you see that and you set that aside, everything else is the same. We can say, when among animals do stars align in such a way that all of a sudden bigger weapons are better? And we can look at military technologies and say, when on that sort of landscape of battles and technologies, when do we find circumstances lining up so that all of a sudden bigger weapons are better? And that's the parallel. The conditions that trigger an arms race in animals turn out to be the same conditions that trigger an arms race in military technologies. You're listening to Science for the People, and today we're talking about examples of extreme weapons in biology and how they evolve with Doug Emlin, professor of biological sciences at the University of Montana. We'll be right back with more Science for the People right after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. You're tuned in to Science for the People, and today we're looking at how huge antlers, horns, and tusks have evolved in nature, and what that might be able to tell us about the progression of our own man-made weapons. With me is Doug Emlin, biologist and author of the book, Animal Weapons, The Evolution of Battle. One of my favorite parts of the book was the section about ways animals in these groups kind of cheat the game. Um, sort of, if you can't beat them, sneak around and get in the back door when they aren't looking mentality. Yes. And that's also something that is uh, frighteningly parallel between dung beetles, for example, animals, and our own military technologies and arms races. Cheating is pervasive. So let me back up a step just to complete the logic and get there. What we talked about is circumstances can spark an arms race. Once an arms race starts, it proceeds, it unfolds through this sequence of stages, and you start getting bigger and bigger weapons. And as the weapons get big, they get expensive. Well, when they get expensive they also become a very effective signal. So in a sense, they become an even more effective tool for these animals because not all fights escalate into knockdown, drag-out battle. I mean, if battle's dangerous, you wouldn't necessarily expect a male to lunge blindly into a full-out brawl if he could tell ahead of time that he might not win. If there's information there staring them in the face that actually would let males assess who's going to win and who's not, then it pays to pay attention. And so what you find is these big weapons that are also expensive also make sort of honest billboards of fighting ability. 
because they're expensive, you can't fake them. You can't produce a big weapon if you don't have the resources to produce a big weapon. There's no way around the fact that these things are unbelievably prohibitively expensive. So if a male crab goes up against another male crab and they're waving their claws in the air and one male has a much bigger claw than the other, that's the male that's almost certainly going to win the fight because that claw is an honest signal of the strength and the size and the stamina of that male. It's a billboard saying, I'm bigger than you, I'm going to clobber you. The little guys often walk away. So we find this stage in the evolution of arms races where the weapons begin to function as a signal and that makes it even harder for the smaller males to win. Not only do they not necessarily win the fights, but now there's no point in even entering into the fight in the first place. And the males that have the big weapons start doing better and better and better. They don't even have to fight half the time because three quarters of the battles get settled without even entering into a dangerous fight. And so when you get this backdrop, you have this, this incredibly expensive, incredibly effective weapon that works both as a signal that deters rivals and as an actual weapon in battle that lets you win against rivals, then all the reproductive success is going to this tiny little fraction of these super stud, really big males with the huge weapons. What are all the rest of the males going to do? I mean, you can't produce the big weapon. Most of the males don't have the resources to do it. And so if you can't win by the rules, those males are never going to be able to go wave their claw and win a contest, because if they wave their claw, it's instantly apparent to the rival that the claw is tiny. And if you actually ignore that and charge into battle, you're almost certainly going to lose that too, because the other male really is bigger, really is stronger, and they really do have the better weapon. You're going to lose. And so what you find in species after species after species, it's one of the really, ah, it's one of my favorite things about animal behavior, actually, is you find all these clever ways to break the rules. And so in all these animals, what you find is the small males, the ones who don't have the resources to play the game and win the normal way, the conventional way, they ditch convention. And they start using, you know, the parallel and military technologies as asymmetric tactics. So in dung beetles, for example, I talked about males inside a tunnel and the big male with the horns is bracing himself against the entrance to the tunnel. The female's down inside the tunnel. You got to get to the female if you're going to mate with the female and you can't do that because you can't get past this big guarding male. And so other males can come in and try and they can challenge and fight, but unless they're huge, they're not going to win those fights. So what happens in these beetles is the little guys sneak in on the sly. Instead of trying to go in the front door and fight that big guarding male, they dig their own tunnel and they go down a, a little bit and then they cut horizontally and they intercept the guarded tunnel beneath the guarding male. So the big guy's up there guarding the entrance and the little guy is sneaking into the tunnel beneath them and they can get in beneath that male, shoot down to the female, mate with the female, sneak right back out again, essentially before the big guarding male even knows what's going on. So here's this beautiful system where there's selection for bigger and bigger and bigger weapons because the males with the biggest weapons really do win. They guard the tunnels. They have access to the females the most consistently. But the little guys are cheating. They're breaking the rules and they're sneaking in on the sly and finding their way down to the females. And in almost every animal species that people have looked at, they found similar types of ways of cheating or breaking the rules. So you can talk about frogs where the males are calling, calling, calling from the territories and the females are consistently coming to the territories of the biggest, sexiest males with the deepest calls, calls that little guys can't cheat. They really aren't big enough to produce the frequencies and the sound that the females like. There's no way they're going to win by calling. So don't even try. So the little guys will lurk up to the edge of the big male territories and sit there silent, basically looking and acting like a female. 
and they sit there. And then when females come in attracted to the calls of the big males, these guys can intercept them. And it turns out that that is also parallel with military arms races. So you see an arms race like the ship designs we talked about, where the battleships get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But you see technologies that break the rules and do an end run and get around the cost of producing these crazy weapons. And so I can give you some fun examples if you want, but um, almost every arms race that has resulted in extraordinary expensive state-of-the-art weapons technologies has also seen ways of cheating and breaking the rules that don't involve expending all the extraordinary cost. Arms races obviously can go on really far, far enough to create these enormous structures or in uh, the human parallel to create these enormous warships, but they can't go on forever. It seems like they have to stop at some point and either revert or find some sort of balance. I'm wondering, is it often what that brings an this, arms race to the end? Yeah. Or like, is there a pendulum swing where it just yeah. kind of goes from one side to the other in a kind of endless loop? Well, there's a couple things, and this is a really fun area. This was one of the most fun areas for me as I was researching this stuff, because here's an area where biology didn't offer that much. I mean, we could tell by looking at groups of organisms like the beetles. I talk about beetles. They're my favorite example. You can reconstruct a phylogeny that looks at the diversity of species, and and you can trace the evolution of weapons on this sort of map, if you will, of all the diversification among species that has happened through, say, 40 million years of beetle history. And when you do that, you can see that weapons are really dynamic. They pop up all the time. So when we did this for dung beetles, we looked at like 50 different species that covered a time period of about 40 million years. Brand new weapons had popped up at least 15 different times. So boom, this lineage has a whole new horn that wasn't there before and it's off to the races. And boom, over here, another lineage has a huge horn that wasn't there before, off to the races. You can also tell when you do this that lots of times the weapons disappear. So these arms races must end. But we didn't really have a good idea why they end or how they end. And we almost never get to see it in a natural animal population. So we don't have snapshots where we can really see why an arms race ends. But when you look to the military literature, that's not true. We have very, very good documented histories of the, ter- the transitions in these weapons technologies. And we know with incredible clarity why arms races and military technique and traditions collapse. And that was really rich for me. Talk about pendulum swinging back. Yes, there are predictable situations where an arms race will end. And I think those same situations apply to animals too. So if we run with the military technologies, what brings one of these arms races to, to an end? Well, it comes back to these cheaters, the sneaky males, the little dung beetles that, that worm their way in from the side, they're breaking the rules. They're not paying a huge price. They're not shunting 30% of their body weight into a weapon. They don't have stunted testes or tiny eyes. These guys aren't paying the price. But if they can sneak in on the side and actually mate with females, they're doing great. And in fact, if the sneaky males start doing well enough, you reach a point where why should you be investing in the big weapons at all? If you can do just as well without them, then it's much better not to have the big weapons and to go a different route instead. And so in military technologies, the idea then is if there's a cheat or a sneak that breaks the rules in a way that is so effective, what it can do is it can undermine the benefits of the big expensive weapons. And it can create a situation where the big weapons aren't cost effective anymore. It's not worth investing in them because you can do just as well without producing those weapons if you cheat. 
And if the cheaters start doing too well, the whole thing can collapse. What had been a benefit actually becomes a liability. And not only is it expensive and not really helping, but it actually hurts you. And you want to get rid of it as fast as possible. One of my favorites is is the evolution of armor in the Middle Ages. Talk about a classic situation with duels. I mean, imagine tournaments among knights where you literally had rival knights one-on-one against each other, charging down a lane with, with jousting and lances and trying to knock each other off of horses. But even in battle during the Middle Ages, when you had men-at-arms or knights in armor, they tended to fight each other one-on-one. You'd have a row of soldiers from one side and a row of soldiers from the other side, and they would march up to each other and confront each other face-to-face, hand-to-hand, and each knight was fighting the opponent directly across from him in the line in a one-on-one sword fight or a one-on-one duel. So during the Middle Ages, you had all the preconditions for an arms race, and you had extraordinarily rapid evolution of the armor. The armor started out as just little bits of leather padding. It ended up turning into chain mail, which was a better stopper for a blade, and then more layers of padding. And then you start putting plates on the joints that could get cut really easily with a sword. So you had them on the elbow joints and the shoulder joints and on the head. And then that got even more elaborate. And before long, you've got these full body suits of armor. And then before long, on top of that, if you're going to put armor on you, you should put it on your horse because you're riding a horse into battle. And so people started having custom fitted suits of armor for the horses. By the time armor hit its heyday, these things were unbelievably expensive. It was something that only the richest knights could afford to do. And they had layers and layers of padding and mail and plate armor and they might have three or four war horses in their in their retinue and each horse was custom fitted with its own set of armor i mean you're talking about an incredibly expensive set of weapons but they worked if one of these knights rode into a field to battle they would be going straight for the knights of the other side they didn't care about the peasants on the ground because there was nothing that the fighters that weren't also comparably armed really wealthy knights could do that would endanger a fully armed knight astride a horse. So they were incredibly effective weapons in their day. But new technologies changed the game. It started with crossbows, which, if they hit just right, could actually penetrate the armor. Usually the armor was designed so that it would deflect these things, but a straight-on hit could go straight through. The English longbow was even more effective at penetrating armor, and by the time you had muskets with gunpowder, the game was over. It didn't matter whether you were in armor or not. A peasant could pick up a musket and shoot down the best-armed, best-trained knight in the field. And by that point, not only was the armor not helping you in battle, but it hurt you because you're a target sitting up there on top of a horse. You can't move very fast because as well-designed as it was, you're still like a turtle up there. You're relatively clumsy. And if they manage to knock you off your horse, you're like an uprooted turtle on your back. I mean, these things, these knights were incredibly helpless once they fell to the ground and they could be killed at point-blank range with crossbows. And so you reach a point where a new technology, gunpowder or longbows, made these knights who had been immune sitting ducks and vulnerable targets. And all of a sudden, it's not worth spending literally a fortune on weapons that, if anything, make you a target, slow you down and make you a liability rather than immune to everything else on the field. And so very quickly, the evolution of armor collapsed and, and armor essentially was was relegated to ceremonies and, and not to actual battle. In fact, armor wasn't replaced on the battlefield until Kevlar, much, much, much more recently because there was no, you could produce plates of armor that were thick enough to stop a bullet, but they were so heavy that they made it impossible to do anything and they were cost prohibitive. So anyway, there's an arms race that started with duels that led to really rapid evolution of 
more and more elaborate, more and more expensive armor plating and, and design. And it culminated when a new technology broke the rules, something that didn't require years of training, that didn't cost a fortune, that any peasant could pick up and fire, and it made the armor obsolete. The end of an arms race comes about when a change in technology allows cheaters or individuals that aren't playing by the rules to start doing too well. And it undermines the payoff of the big weapons. It makes them so they're no longer cost-effective. And suddenly something that had been an incredible asset becomes a liability. So in this case, we're looking to uh, military history and military strategy to learn something about the potential biology. But what about the other way? What can we take from understanding the biology at play that might help us from a military standpoint? This is fun to do, but I have to qualify it with the fact that, you know, this is fun, but I'm not a military historian or in a military think tank. So so I'm out of my element here, but it's neat. I mean, I have to step back and just say, how fun is this period? I mean, I'm somebody who spent years in tropical forests studying little tiny beetles with horns. You know, we're in an age where people don't necessarily value basic science, pure science for the sake of science. Who would have thought that studying dung beetles in a tropical forest would tell you anything relevant to anything, much less about national security or about arms races or about, you know, the political landscape that we face today? But this is the, the joy of basic science. Every now and then it surprises you. It takes you in directions you really don't anticipate. And in this case, once I started realizing that I could understand military technologies with the same logic I was using to understand animals, I mean, the parallels were exciting. They're fun. You, you sort of follow that logic all the way through. And this is something I try to do in the book. I say, okay, if we're going to make these comparisons, where do they take you? How far can we go with this logic? And then when do we go too far? And, and a couple of the lessons that, that I've come away with, and, and you know, you may or may not agree with them, but they at least were my attempt as a scholar to take the logical framework we're talking about here and connect the dots and say, okay, if we're going to use the logic from animals to look at military technologies, where do we go? Let's, let's connect those dots, follow that trajectory and see where it takes us. Where it took us was kind of scary. <laughs> One of the take home messages I took from this was first of all, that arms races are dynamic entities that don't last forever. They, they lead to the evolution of very expensive weapons. They push populations to the point where animals are shunting resources into weapons technologies at a level that's not sustainable. Anybody who's lived through the Cold War can think in real terms about the price that governments pay when they start investing everything they've got into military technologies and into things connected to or relevant to an arms race. I mean, the, the, the price tag can be staggering. We predict that the weapons are going to get more and more elaborate, more and more expensive at an escalating and incredibly fast pace. We predict that as they get more expensive, they're going to become effective as deterrents because they get so expensive. That means that not every nation can afford to produce the absolute state-of-the-art, best-of-the-best weapons. These things are, by definition, going to be so prohibitively expensive that most countries can't do it at all. That political reality means that these are awesome deterrents. It means if you've got them, if you happen to be in the superpower and you can afford to produce these things, you're safer in a way because you've got something that nobody would dare challenge outright. And that is an exact parallel with what you see in animal weapons. But you also predict that the race will come crashing down, that it won't go on forever, that the expenses get so high that eventually they're not sustainable. And you predict that sneak tactics are going to invade. And so I would say if I look at the political reality we see today, it's 
alarmingly parallel to what I see with crabs on a beach or dung beetles in a tunnel in the ground in the rainforest. The United States, for example, is investing stunning amounts of resources into incredible, I mean, really impressive military technologies that cost a fortune that work as deterrence. The cost of an aircraft carrier strike group is $20 billion. And arguably, we use our aircraft carrier strike groups in the same way that the British Navy did with their state-of-the-art ships of the line. You could sail one of those ships into a harbor and you could settle disputes and conflicts on the spot. These things made brilliant deterrence. But you have to follow the dots all the way. And if you follow the dots all the way, then the next question is, oh, what are the cheating tactics? And so first of all, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the, the kinds of foes that the United States faces all the time are basically countries that cheat. They can't afford to play by the same rules. They're not a superpower with investments in military technologies that match our own. So we're dealing with low-tech things like landmines and IEDs and homemade pipe bombs and hijacked airplanes. And so we see essentially asymmetric warfare, guerrilla warfare tactics. The parallels are incredible. I mean, you see combatants don't wear uniforms announcing themselves as rival combatants. They hide like civilians. Well, God, that looks a lot like a dung beetle where the little guys that don't produce the horns essentially look just like a female. They act just like a female. They're not labeling themselves as a conventional combatant. They're cheating. They're sneaking. And so we're facing opponents who aren't playing by the rules. They're using a shoestring budget to challenge a leviathan, and they're breaking the rules. So now we have to say, okay, when do our weapons technologies go too far? Is there a point where, like all the other arms races in the past and all the other animal arms races, is there a point where it gets too far and the weapons are so expensive or a new technology becomes so effective that these weapons become obsolete? And that's where I got a little bit scared. Because when we're talking about the political reality we live in now and the weapons technologies that we depend on now for our security and for our allies' security, we're talking about weapons technologies that are absolutely, utterly dependent on sophisticated software. I mean, you can't fly a modern fighter without the fly-by-wire software systems that integrate the pilot movements with the plane. And the planes can turn so fast that the G-forces would knock a pilot unconscious and we'd lose a $60 million plane. You can't fly them without the software that literally slow these planes down and bank the turns so that the planes don't do something that's beyond the physical capacity of the pilot. Think about the navigation systems for our missiles or the missile lock systems or our carriers, our submarines, our missile systems, our defense systems. Everything depends on software. Software. And unfortunately, it's possible to hack software. And we know it's occurred. So when I started digging into this stuff, again, I'm an amateur, I work on beetles, but here I was pouring through the literature, it scared the daylights out of me. So there's this thing that I don't know how many people paid attention to when it hit the news, but in 2003, it's called Titan Rain. The Chinese hacked into a huge amount of our defense systems and our military computers. And then it happened again in 2013. And now the articles that come out on this suggest that they'd successfully hacked into the control systems for the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, the V-22 Osprey, it's a tilt rotor aircraft, the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense Missile System, the Aegis Ballistic Missile Defense System, the Global Hawk Drone System. They hacked into some of our most fundamental military technology systems. And you know what? They weren't stealing data. They were inserting code. I guess these things are called zero-day attacks. If they hadn't been stumbled on, if this hadn't been found and yanked out of the system, they would have surreptitiously inserted code into these military systems that, when activated, could have given them control over our military systems. God, I mean, that is the ultimate sneak. It's cryptic. They're worming into our systems. We've got these 
billions and billions of dollar systems. And for a shoestring budget, you've got hackers working in through the firewalls and inserting code. So we're talking about a situation where, yeah, we've got incredible weapons, but we may be vulnerable. We may be in a situation where in the not too distant future, the cheaters, the sneaking tactics become so overwhelmingly and instantly successful that they render our technologies obsolete. What happens then? I mean, I think we have some really hard decisions to face if and when that ever occurs. And the other big one that's sort of like a hand grenade I'll just lob and leave there hanging is weapons of mass destruction. That's a game changer, too. In fact, that's a situation where I kind of have to just call up short and throw in the towel and say, I don't know what to predict. Because I can tell you during the Cold War, incidentally, the Cold War was a duel, I have to point out. It ended up political landscape coalesced around, you know, essentially the USSR versus NATO. You had two opposing forces that were locked face-to-face like crabs in the sand and pouring resources into escalating weapons technologies on every front imaginable. But during that incredible arms race, the ultimate weapons, the ones that were the ultimate deterrents in that game, were the nuclear weapons. And you didn't have them in the hands of dozens of nations. They were essentially controlled by the two superpowers, and they worked very effectively as deterrents. They played by the rules. They acted just like claws in a crab or antlers in a caribou. They did everything the same way that animal arms races do. But now, that doesn't hold true anymore. The the, the things with the greatest potential to kill, the weapons of mass destruction like nuclear warheads, they're 20 years old and decrepit half the time. We've got warehouses filled with these things. They're not as expensive as they used to be, so they don't meet the criteria of a deterrent, they, at least not the way that animal weapons do. And we have many, many more states out there with their hands on them. And it's not inconceivable that they might get out of the hands of governments and actually get into the hands of radical organizations with their own agendas. And so instead of having a very predictable face-off duel lineup of one power against another power in the sand, which at least, as scary as it is, at least is predictable, you now have much more like a scramble with lots of different nations, with lots of different agendas, all having their hands on weapons that have no precedent, that are so deadly that basically they should never be used. That's a really scary, unpredictable situation, and I don't know how to help, except I will tell you that if you look to animals, these weapons always do get used. One of the things you see in animals is it's called the paradox of peace, but the bigger the weapon, the more expensive the weapon in an animal species, the more often that the fights get settled without battle. So the species with the biggest weapons are actually the most peaceful because 95% of the fights get settled just by waving the weapons and looking at each other, and they defuse before they escalate into battle. My favorite study that showed this was a study of caribou where they looked at 11,000 confrontations between males. Only six turned into knockdown, drag-out, ruthless battle. Six out of 11,000. So here's caribou have the biggest antlers of any deer species. So one of the biggest antlers of any or weapons of any animal out there relative to body size. And 99.99% of their fights are being settled without dangerous battle. I mean, that's pretty cool when you think about it. Big weapons make great deterrence. But in animals, they always do still get used. There's always still a few fights that go all the way to the knockdown, no holds barred battle. And that's kind of a scary take home because, you know, The nuclear weapons really didn't get used in the Cold War, and we dodged that bullet. That confrontation backed down before it escalated all the way to full-blown thermonuclear war. 
But how many, you know, <laughs> when you look at all the places that have them now and all the agendas of the governments that have them now and all the, the scuffles on the, you know, how long before somebody decides to use one of those weapons? And again, the animal lesson is, wow, once things become a scramble, all bets are off. They don't make very effective deterrence when everything is confusing and unpredictable. So I threw in the towel. I think there are some parallels that are stunning, exciting. As a scholar, I love them. I mean, I think they're, they're so exciting to follow and to pursue. And, and I like trying to write about that, trying to take a reader that might not be used to thinking about these things. It could be military people that don't normally read about animals, suddenly realizing, wow, you know, I've always hunted elk, but I never thought about why they do this. And I never realized it was the same as what's happening in our military technologies. Or I like the idea of taking people who read natural history and getting them to think about military technologies in a way that they might not. I mean, it's, it's fun to do that. But when you connect the dots and you follow it all the way through to the conclusion, there's some pretty scary take-home messages. And all I end up doing is sort of laying them on the table and letting the readers decide, cop out or not, that was as far as I was prepared to go. On that note, (laughs) (laughs) Doug, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, Animal Weapons is a is a fascinating book that takes a look at things in a way that I definitely had never thought about them before. I hadn't either, for what it's worth. (laughs) And if you want to learn more about Doug Emlin's research or his book, Animal Weapons, The Evolution of Battle, we have links to both in the show notes for this episode, which, of course, you can find on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to our social media feeds, to subscribe to the show in iTunes, and to join the discussion by leaving a comment on our episode posts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. (laughs) 